0: Geeks, and welcome to another edition of The Wizard Files, the special podcast series where we go behind the scenes with former staff members of Wizard Magazine and those comic book professionals who appeared in its pages. I'm Adam. And I'm Michael. And joining us today is a celebrated and prolific comic book inker, writer, creator, publisher whose fingerprint is on books from every major publisher and plenty of the smaller ones, too. For the past 30 years, we dare you to try to pick up a handful of comic books from the 90s, especially, and not find his name or incline somewhere. He's also the co-creator of Ash, Painkiller Jade, 22 Brides, along with Amanda Connors, responsible for redefining Harley Quinn for the modern times. We are excited to welcome to the show, Mr. Jimmy Palmiotti. How you doing?
1: Good guys. Good guys. Wow. I'm listening to that and I'm going, yeah, I've been working too hard, I think. (laughs) There's no sign of retirement, but I definitely have calmed down a little bit since the 90s and 2000s. That's for sure.
0: (laughs) Well, I got to mention to you, Jimmy, this is actually not the first time you and I have met. In 1991, I was just becoming a comic book fan. My friend's dad was the guy who introduced me to the whole world of collecting and, and what's good and what's exciting. Takes us to these comic book stores while you and Joe were traveling around California. That's where I'm from originally. And we hit it up and I got this beautiful ghostwriter issue, you know, with the whole pole through the eye and all that. The white got, cover. Yeah. The white yeah. cover. Yeah. You guys were just so cool. And it was like, wow, comic book people are cool. Then I, I think at another store, Joe was there and I got my copy of The Rain. Number one side by him. As oh, okay, well, yeah,
2: so.
1: yeah. Those were good times. Uh, that's when I was thinking, like uh, three books a month. I think back then, you know, yeah,
0: all over the place. I think there was a Punisher in there too that I that I had you signed. So, oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Good times.
1: But, but I've never I, met you before after that, because you I, look I don't so familiar so. to me.
0: I have one of those faces that that's what everybody <laughs> says. They're like, I know you're know, from faces. somewhere.
1: Yeah, it's, yeah milk, that's it. I've seen you on my milk carton when I had my
2: morning breakfast. <laughs>
0: oh, but I will tell you, Michael is a huge fan of your work as well. You know, beyond the 90s. I'm mostly stuck in the 90s always. just in Why, life why you do you
1: think see. you're stuck in the 90s? That's just like you don't want to leave that childhood safe place. <laughs>
0: What I feel like is I only appreciated like ten percent of it back then, oh, and so there, I got I got to get the full ninety. I got to dive back in and dissect and understand what was That's, going on. <laughs> yeah,
1: I, I'm the same way. I think I, I think I was too busy living it to fully appreciate it. So, <laughs> sure.
2: Uh, oh man, first of all, you know, I wanted to say thank you for joining us and, and having this conversation with us. As Adam said, I'm a, I'm a huge fan. I'm a huge fan of Amanda's as well. My knowledge of comics goes from like. 85 to like 92 and then like girls hit and I kind of died off for a little bit and then I came back in like 2005, 2006 where Adam stopped so I pick up where he leaves off in that <laughs> kind of
0: genre i want to just start off though here with a little bit of fun in issue 60 of wizard there was a letter from a reader okay mm-hmm. who wrote in to ask who would win in a fight between you and your longtime collaborator and friend joe Casada. so wizard called in to both of you and this is what they had to say first Jimmy Palmiani said quote i'd win because i'm from brooklyn even if i couldn't win i just hire someone to beat him up But surprisingly enough, Quesada agreed he'd win, meaning you, but he'd have to get about 10 of his knife-sticking, club-wielding Goombas to do it. He'd never win in a fair fight. So my question is now, Jimmy, all these years later, has anything changed since 1996? Has Joe gotten his black belt? Have you failed to renew the registration for your hands as deadly weapons? Um, I don't know if
1: Joe's got his black belt. Hmm. I I wouldn't hire people to fight for me. That that was that was him assuming I would do that, Um, right? Things changed. I'm I'm a better fighter than I was now than back then. I think I'm a a better class of fighter, but I don't usually fight. I definitely fight for creators'
0: rights, but not with your fists.
1: Social media has taught me when and how to pick my fights and I don't think Joe and I physical fighting it was ever the key it, it, maybe we argued over things but mental you know,
2: warfare
1: yeah I,
2: I, I, uh, how, how would I put this
1: I only lose fights to Amanda <laughs>
2: that, that that's fair but my wife's an attorney I lose <laughs> fights to her on a daily basis so yeah, I, don't know.
1: I and she's the only one I'm worried about losing to you know or winning you <laughs> or know, winning so, yeah yeah, I, yeah the, the other <laughs> even if you win uh, you lose yeah. other comic creators I, you know honestly you take a donut and throw it that way and they usually <laughs> <laughs> run after so I'm not, I don't really fight with other creators. You know, I'm still the editor in me. We'll call them out on deadlines every now and again. But I think that's part of my job as uh, being, being an editor on, on my own books right now. The ones I do with paper films is I have to be the nice guy slash. Hey, you know, we're late. We're hitting a deadline thing. You know, it, it's funny because comic people and fighting are like, <laughs> like ridiculous. Like, okay. when's the last time you heard two comic creators get into a physical fight? <laughs> <laughs> I can't yeah. even name one.
0: I think there was a challenge once w- where uh, like Dave Sim was calling out Jeff Smith and Jeff Smith's like, you want to go right now? We'll set up a boxing match. We'll do it. But I think that was it. <laughs> yeah,
1: And Jeff's, Jeff's wiry. So I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't mess with Jeff too much. He's a wiry guy. He, oh. he, he's got all that hair. That means he's got a lot of testosterone going through his
0: body. <laughs> That's pretty funny. If the fight was going to take place. It would take place at a convention for sure. They'd be selling tickets, but.
1: Yeah, I think think. if Joe and I had like a fight, we would be like, you know, if we were having like a a, a drawing duel, he would destroy me. If we were having a writing duel, I'd probably have a little bit of an edge with my experience. But after that, we would just probably be laughing off and go get lunch. So it wouldn't be a thing. There we go.
0: Yeah. Sounds great. Boys be it boys. Yes.
2: So you recently returned from a convention. What is a major difference in your opinion, from conventions in the '90s versus conventions today?
1: COVID tests after the con—that was like not a not a common <laughs> thing back <in> the day. <laughs> yes, that's true. Because the world has changed. Coming back from a convention in the '90s, I was broke. I would literally do a convention and be like $800 to $1,200 in a hole because I would be buying dinners or I'd go out for drinks or I'd buy some stuff. And so I'd have no money. And I remember they were great for promotion. They were not great for the bank book. I remember coming back from San Diego once and going, I'm like $4,000 short because we used to not charge for autographs and all that kind of stuff. So that difference is right away, I actually come back from a con and I can, we have the, Amanda and I call it the break-even cons, where we where we leave and we're like, oh, we covered the meals, we covered this, we covered that. Fantastic. That's one thing. Two, I think for, for me, it's always been the same. Like I, I Amanda and I view cons as a great place to meet the people that support us. And we've never delineated from that. You know, if you ever go to a convention where we're sitting there, Amanda and I like to talk to everyone. That's why the line moves slow. We we like to spend time with everybody. And we definitely see a lot of familiar faces. And I just think in the 90s, there was a, a more feeling, a better feeling of things changing for positive ways. Like definitely the 90s felt like Hey, things are now changing. Creators are going to be taken care of better and this and that. And I think now we're back to the companies, the big companies kind of getting to the point where they're rewriting contracts and languages. They raised the number of books, numbers, sales we have to do to get a royalty. It used to be 40000 Now they have to sell over 60000 for us wow. to get a penny. Does that count with digital
2: company. as well? Is it, or is uh, just... Digital
1: doesn't. Digital doesn't really play into that same kind of rules. Digitals don't sell as much as you think they do.
2: <laughs> yeah, in no.
1: Mainstream I... comic books. Then they do the thing where it's like Netflix, where you pay that one price and you get all the books. Mm-hmm. So there's no transparency in their accounting. You just get this this check and there's no explanation, and they don't mm-hmm. give you a breakdown of what's sold. So you have to take it. On trust, and I don't trust any corporation that has more than like 10 or 12 people in it. I just don't trust it because there's a problem. There's always some issues. There's yeah. always issues, you know, and all of a sudden I'm paying for some guy's first class flight to somewhere, You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So yeah. it's, there's always issues like that. So definitely uh, transparency has gotten worse in comics. The only good news is there's more publishers, but even then the difference between now and then is I wish I, I had better lawyers back then. I didn't, I had an okay lawyer mm-hmm. at the time and I have much better lawyers. Now I, I learned to hire people that used to work at those big companies. Ah. Uh that's what I learned cuz they they can see through stuff but right. um let's see other than that let's see there's a lot more cosplay which I love the negative is they treat celebrities a hundred times better than the comic celebrities Oh
2: for sure yeah
1: and people come to us they go uh, to our table I'd love to buy something but I just spent $300 with Thor getting a photo. So um, I don't have money. Can you give me your book for half price? And I'm like, it's $5. I don't know what you want me to tell you. you know, So that's kind of different. I, I think comic shows have become more entertainment shows. And I do love when a comic show is an actual comic show.
2: I, I agree. Like I work in Brooklyn and I've gone to NYCC a million times. And yeah. the earlier iterations of it, it was more about you guys now it's like the giant geico ads and like what's happening on the sci-fi network and they relegate you guys to as far away as humanly possible
1: yeah we used to say you know at the cons you go and the comic creators get the uh cold sandwiches and the Mm -hmm. and the movie stars get the hot meals and uh And then they make excuses like, well, you know, if we would give you hot food, it would cost $200 more for the weekend. And I'd be like, yeah. And, you know, it's 55 bucks to walk into the show, times that by 100,000 people. That kind of adds up pretty good. Anyway, um, so the cons have been become more of a business and less of for the fans. The the creators are still working hard to do and sell anything they can to make a buck. You see popular guys selling prints. They're just, they really need the money. It's not like it's not a joke, right? And then, you know, I miss I mean, I used to host the Wizard Awards with my buddy nelson i miss doing stuff like that where it was like fan driven and fun Mm -hmm. the panel's feel like infomercials sometimes for me. So I kind of try to stay away from the information part of panels and try to do fun panels. I think every time Amanda and I, we do an Amanda and Jimmy panel where we just sit up there and talk. So I think that I think the tone has changed. I think they've become more big business and people started buying up individual shows. You know, there's two or three companies, Reed, Fan Expo. They bought up all the smaller shows. And so now they all feel the same. And I'm still a fan of doing small shows. So I do pop into smaller shows that are just comic shows once in a while. But it's definitely become big business for everyone except for the creators. Well, yeah.
0: speaking speaking of big business, you know, uh, in the early '90s, you know, comics really became a big business in a different way, right? They're they're generating millions for some publishers, and so just away from the conventions themselves, but just as far as what you were dealing with, can you describe like the feeling, the opportunities that this created for artists like yourself? Like you were saying, and if, at that point, it felt like, oh, we're gonna change things. It's gonna be different. Like, how fun was that that era of like the the early '90s?
1: The image guys walked away. From- from. from Marvel did their own thing and made a fortune. And Joe and I definitely, at the time we were working together and felt like, well, we could do that. And we did it on a very small scale with events since it was only me, Joe, and Laurie running the place. But it felt like things were changing And again towards the end of the 90s You know Marvel was probably in one of the worst Spots they have ever been they were in chapter 11 And then actually it was Gareth Seamus who talked to Joe Calamari who was the then president Of Marvel and Joe Calamari was Looking to try anything with The company to get sales up and to get ever. I mean at the time when we were there they were Canceling Daredevil Punisher and a couple Of other books and you can't even conceive That right right, in a way but they were actually Canceling them because of low sales so so Garab's the one that recommended Joe and I to uh, Marvel. And we went up to meet Joe Calamari. And then we that's where we came up with it. They came up and offered us four titles. We gave them our demands. We wanted the penthouse. We wanted this much money, yada, yada, yada. And for Joe and I, we were doing well in, with Event. And, you know, looking back on some level, I think we should have stuck with Event and maybe pushed the Marvel deal aside. But the better thing would have been to integrate the Event comics into the Marvel universe, which is what we originally were going to do when we oh, got wow. in there. And and then that kind of got pushed aside with business and madness. I mean, you know, once Marvel Knights was successful, they started hitting us with a thousand things like, hey, can you fix this? And can you fix that? And I lasted two and a half years. I mean, I felt like I felt like what we did was as far as I wanted to go, as far as working for a, a corporation. And Joe obviously felt differently and stayed and <laughs> became in chief. It wasn't the job that I wanted. You know, I don't I didn't want a, an office job. I just I'm not that guy. You right. know, at my office, in my house, I, I wanted to create more so we kind of went different ways but it was an exciting time because when Marvel Knights dropped I don't think anybody expected it I don't think anyone expected it to sell that well and I think it's part of my career is a lot of underestimations you know Mm -hmm. like all of a sudden they hand me something and they think well whatever it might work it might
2: not work. It's funny you say that like your run with Harley Quinn and even with Starfire like I wasn't going to pick it up at first and my buddy was like you gotta be reading these and those two books in, in DC like reinvented those characters revitalized those characters, it changed the game. They were top sellers for so long. And I actually even recently have been picking up the Harley Quinn and Birds of Prey black label book, which is yeah. fantastic. And he, people are like, Why are you buying this giant book? I'm like, You gotta read this thing. It's so good, it's so unique. Well, thank you. The the uh
1: the stuff that Amanda and I work on together, and Justin Gray, too, as far as Power Girl and Jonah Hex. I mean, what we do is we look at the character and say, What's the best things about the character? And then we look at it and go, what are the worst things? We definitely make a list. And some of the worst things are heavy continuity. Some of the worst things are expectations of this or people are fighting it. And so when we look at something like Harley, Power Girl, Jonah, anything. We look at them and say, OK, these are the things they love about the characters. But what doesn't work with them? And, you know, for us, when we got Harley, obviously we said, well, it doesn't work that she's in an abusive relationship. So let's get her out of that right away. Mm-hmm. And then the other thing was like she's stuck with this character called Gotham and Batman. And she's just another character in that whole universe, unless we get her the hell out of there quick and give her her own supporting cast because she's always been everybody else's supporting cast. Right. So, so with Harley, we just made a list. Amanda and I just made a list of like, well, these are the things that are holding her down from being a bigger character. So when we started writing the book, you know, it was never a comic book where it was superhero versus villain. It was always, here's Harley, here's her life. Try to tag along as we follow her from day to day into her insane world. And, you know, it was funny because Dan Deo said to me, he goes, you know, two years in and you haven't really introduced a villain in the book. And I said, yeah, because th- th- this comic's not about that. It's about the journey of the character, you know, and and the same thing with like Starfire. We looked at Starfire and said, OK, we like these things about the past runs and George and all these people working on. It. We like this about the TV show, the cartoon. And then we just said, OK, but they wanted us to start it like they said that our rule on a book was it the book as if you never read the character before in your life. Mm-hmm. And so some people at first were saying, you know, you guys simplified it and it's this and that. And I said, hang in there because... This is to get everybody else warmed up to who she is and what she is and then let us dig in for the rest of the story. And
0: what's fascinating is that, you know, with Harley Quinn recently and then also with what you were able to, you know, enable with Black Panther and Daredevil with Kevin Smith at the time, like with Marvel Knights, these all informed all the live action versions that we've gotten now. Like your take where it's based on character, like you say, so much on the character and then also some action here and there. Like that's what people really seem to want. But I got to get back real quick when you talking about, you know, Joe going full corporate and all of that. Of course, in recent news, Joe just stepped down from his position at Marvel. So you can tell us, Jimmy, is that so the two of you can finally reboot Ash? Is Ash going into the Marvel Universe? Is that what this is all about?
1: You know, Joe has done an amazing job and he's been there for how many years? I don't even know how many years. You know, I think he I I think Joe is a guy of challenges and and, uh, I think there was not many challenges left up there for him to do. So he moved on and he's, he's like his letter said, he's like trying new things. Uh, As far as Ash, nothing is on the horizon. We talk about it once in a while, but, you know, we have to, it's like a character we share. So we have to be in the same place at the same time wanting to do it. And right now the both of us have like a hundred things in front of us. So it's, you know, it's almost like we should license the character to other people to do for a while because it's like, the both of us have a lot to do. I, and I also try to keep Painkiller Jane alive with my Kickstarters. And Joe's, Joe was fine with that. Joe's like that. But Ash, we have to do. And I said, I, I totally get it. So I don't see anything soon. Uh, Guys your age all want another new Ash book. And and I always (laughs) say we still have to finish that last story we did before we do a new (laughs) one. But you never know. I mean, Joe and I are talking and and, uh, there are a lot of opportunities, even to do an artist edition, because we both have all the original art. We've never sold any Ash art. So that's um, cool. But it's like. I'm looking at I'm looking when it's on my wall here to do and I'm like oh god I don't you know <laughs> I, if I put Ash up there I think the
2: wall would fall over
0: yeah and, and let's let's uh, let's go back a little bit further even you talked about how you know Garib was instrumental in you guys getting the deal to to run the Mar- Marvel Knights imprint and do all those things but do you actually remember your first meeting with Garib Sheamus? did he contact you did you contact him did you see this as an opportunity what was that those early days of that relationship I, 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 like
1: I, I want to say that I I. probably first met him at either a convention or at Marvel. Like it had to be one or the other place. I don't remember my first meeting with him because Mm -hmm. it would have been very quick and just very like blah, blah, blah. You know, I will say there was a time when we would be invited, of course, to the wizard shows. But even before that, when the magazine was coming out in the 90s, Mm -hmm. Joe and I would make it our business to head up to uh, Rockland County and stop by the offices and get to know everybody. And the guy we got to know the most was Rob Samsel, who was one of the main wizard writers and just a great, just a, a wonderful dude. I mean, he became a really close friend of ours. So we would see guys like Rob and Ian Fella and a whole bunch of different guys up there, Marie and Jen, and we had a whole crew of people we got to know and we would invite them to the New York to our parties. So we would throw parties. Joe and I would throw a lot of very big open comic book parties. In New York City and invite everyone from Marvel, DC, Valiant, uh, Harris. And then we would invite the whole Wizard crew to come down to New York and a party on us. And that's how we got to know a lot of the people. But Garib, we got to know, obviously, every time we went up to Wizard, we'd see Garib and we'd see Fred Pierce when Fred was eventually up there. Mm-hmm. I'd also see Garib's dad. You know, Garab's dad would come to the shows. He would buy our covers, our artwork off the table. Wow. Uh, his, his dad has had so many pieces of artwork from us and we did a signing up in the garib's brother's store in nyack he has a comic store there yeah so we got to know them i mean i, I got to know garib personally garib and his wife back then and the kids and it, it eventually just came became you know a guy that i know that has a magazine i mean and, and you know and we we really got to know each other much better with black bull but that's a whole nother story but back then it was we were we were the guys that understood the power of the magazine and were willing to do things for the magazines besides the covers but also to do contests and to do you know me me doing the wizard awards and and hosting the wizard yeah. awards and like that. Now again so people can understand this is before the internet all right. So you got your news from your comic shop, from Comic Book Buyer's Guide, I guess was the weekly newspaper. And then you got it from mostly from Wizard Magazine. There was some other ones like Fan and, and, and uh, combo. combo
0: and trying to think Hero, of anything. Hero Illustrated.
1: Hero Illustrated. Yeah. But Wizard was the main source. Like if it was in Wizard and Wizard was telling you to buy this book, you probably should have bought that book at the time. It was a go-to place. And we also understood the power of that. Um, when we were launching Ash, like we went up there and said, what do you guys want from us? And they're like, well, we want a one half issue. We want a special cover. We want you. know, So we understood it was give and take in the relationship, but also it benefited us like crazy. It made Joe and I put our faces out there, which, again, comic books back then, people didn't know what creators look like, except yeah. for Wizard. So almost every other issue, we, we were in it and our photos were in it and we were doing contests and they were taking photos, fo- you know. So we understood the power of the magazine and it helped us like even now, right? People know in comics, they know who we are. They see our faces. They recognize us because our faces have been plastered on these books and again now with the internet it's different right but back then you'd be surprised i would see somebody like walt simonson i'd be like oh that's what he looks like you know or even you know it was me and joe the image guys todd you know you see us like almost every other shit billy tucci brian Polito.
2: peter david always pops up in there all the time Peter david
1: (laughs) you know and you know and part of comics is being able to stay in the main spotlight all the time I've been doing it 30 years and it's work, but I still feel I have new stuff coming that nobody's saying, who is that? You know, I I feel like I have to sell to another generation every like five, six years. Uh But that's what what things like Jonah Hex do. That's a thing like Harley Quinn, all of a sudden, you know, bang, there we are again. So I feel like you have to constantly reinvent or at least find something to push. and, And I think my advertising background really helped with that. But you see, there's a guys that we don't hear from anymore. You don't just hear nothing. And I think I think half of this career is putting yourself out there. And the other half, of course, is delivering great work. So anyway, we'll go back. Yeah, to that, that's
0: pictures. that's great to understand. Yeah, the, the wizard was definitely a, a you know big billboard for what you guys are doing. Like you say, you guys got really nice photos in wizard. You know, a lot of times <laughs> on like the top 10 list. It's just like they snapped it a convention guys like, you know, like we, we <laughs> actually
1: we actually use the professional photographer for some pictures. And then when they would run stuff with us, we'd, we'd look through the photos and say, you can't use that one. And <laughs> you, you know, look, we were like little prima donnas. I get it. right? <laughs> but, but my thing is, you know um, you, you want to put out images, you know, like I said, I think at the time the cons were getting bigger and it was so important. People knew what we looked like because we felt that the fans should have a, a, an idea of what, we look like just to say, "Hey, look, there's him," and it, like uh, right. that, there's an excitement to that. People knew what Stan looked like, but they didn't know what Paul Levitts looked like. Or, yeah, or what did Mike Carlin look like, or somebody? You know, unless there was a photo. So it, it was, a lot of times, it was people like, "Oh my God, that's what that guy looks like." Yeah, you know, I we just felt we were coming into the MTV generation and people need to have a face to their music. They need mm. a face to their to their. Um, to the things they love, whether it's video games or music or comics or anything like that. We felt that was part of the selling tool.
2: So was there ever a character that you were handed or characters that you struggled to find a way into or find their voice when you're trying to tell a story with them? So I
1: avoid characters I know I'm going to have problems with. You know, I've been offered Doctor Strange a couple of times to write. And I've said that it's not a good character for me because I feel like all he has to do is go bibbly boo and everything's fixed. Right. So I'm like, I I don't really want that challenge. And I worked on a thing called Countdown where um, it was 52. Oh, yeah, I read it. Weeks of comic, right? Yeah. And well, I tried to quit it a couple of times. And I got You're a lot- you not of- the only one I heard. <laughs> yeah, and, I, and I got phone calls saying, no, no, please don't. It was the only time I had a, an actual exclusive contract and I regret signing that. But as I was working on it, I kept writing letters saying, this is not good. This story is not, it, it's not connecting with me. I, I, I'm having an issue with this because there is no clear story. And then the people that were looking over everything, they didn't have a clear idea. And I tend to run away from that because I'd rather not do a job unless they're either going to make me in charge and trust me to do the story, or I have an outline of where everything's going. And this was a project that had nothing. I I felt Mm -hmm. like it had nothing. So I try to avoid that kind of stuff. And, And again, I get offered books once in a while that I'm like, I get on the phone, I go, that is just so not for me unless... You're gonna let me go in and rework it a little bit, and that's mm-hmm. what we did with Power Girl and Harley and stuff. You know, with Power Girl, they only they told us we only had six issues; it was probably gonna get canceled because nobody's gonna buy it. I bought and, it. I love Power <laughs> Girl. <laughs> I love, love, hey, thank you. And you know, so these books always come with a. I've always I've never gotten the super popular characters. What I've done is get the characters that are in the middle and make them super popular. Mm-hmm. So I don't. They don't hand me Batman or X Men. They hand me. Daughters of the Dragon, or they'll hand me something like Jonah Hex, like, you know, and and, um, and I'm okay because I like the challenge of it. Financially, it's not the smartest thing out of the gate sometimes, but I kind of find the thing I love about the character and, and kind of roll with it. And, and again, when I work with Amanda, we try to make each other laugh or we try, we have fun at the comic in the comic. And you can tell when you buy the comic, it has this sense of joy. Right. Like everything. It's so over the top and fun. And Amanda's art has this like a little electricity to it. I call her like the Betty page of comic art because she can get <laughs> away with anything rude and you're still giggling. and laughing. Yeah,
2: for sure. So that,
1: yeah. So you, so eventually you figure that out about what you're doing. I mean, I look back on Ash and Painkiller Jane and I, you know, of course I see the, fl- all I see is the flaws because we worked on it. And it's funny when people say, Oh, I love those books. And I always go, Oh yeah, but there's so much stuff that we need to fix in there. But that's about growing as an artist. That you you have to kind of do that. Well, I don't I yeah. don't look back too often to be honest with you.
0: Well, it's it's really interesting because you know you and Joe working together and you and Amanda working together. It does it always brings that energy, especially like you know back in the Valiant days, like you know the few issues of Ninjacc. You guys were yeah. able to do. You were, when you look at the first appearance of that character and you're like, there is nothing appealing about this character. And then the first just the cover of that first issue, you're like, what am I going to see in here? And then the interiors were beautiful and all that stuff. And you guys brought that over. To to event comics when you guys launched in 1994 but the question i have is this because you're saying you like to be in charge you want to you know this is kind of your first foray into right. that but it was at a time when sales were dropping you know the, the market was imploding after this glut of new publishers in 93 and then here you guys come many people probably thought this is a bad time to start producing your own line of books and yet you guys had success so what would you say like at that moment in time what were the best and worst things about self-publishing once event comics got going <laughs>
1: best thing was no editorial, because we could do whatever we want. The other thing was low expectations. We didn't really think we'd make much money. And we just wanted to experiment. I mean, it's the first time we were writing our own things and creating our own things, So we knew they might not sell that well. And on some level, we were like, well, let's just make it visually exciting as best we can. And so this, we had nothing to lose, basically. And the best part of it was it was received very well for two guys and a girl just trying to hustle some stuff out. We were overwhelmed for sure, but it was it was a great time because people were looking for something different. And that's what happened, what we stumbled into because people were looking for some kind of different continuity or another universe. And like I said, we were there with Billy Tucci, with She Universe and, and, uh, and Brian with Lady Death and his character, Evil Ernie and stuff. So I just felt people wanted something different than the same old Batman Superman X-Men kind of Wolverine kind of stuff. And, and, our books definitely, you know, had with Joe's covers, they jumped off the rack a little bit. And we had we had it, the books felt different. We were very sensitive about how the paperweight was and how the how the coloring would be. And I mean, that paid off for us with Marvel Knights because they looked different than the Marvel books. We went in with the expectation of comics should be better and we're going to do it and save the world kind of thing. <laughs> and uh, that's the arrogance of youth is we're going to go in. We're going to change everything. And we even had that attitude with Marvel Knights. We went in and said, "We're going to change the way Marvel makes comics because they forgot what was important about these characters, and we felt like they they deserve much better treatment, more adult treatment." And when we went in for the four titles—the Daredevil, Black Panther, Punisher, and Humans—we said, "Let's go in and let's show them what these." The potential of these characters could be and you're right i mean that that attitude has always been what i'm do what i've been working with and it's always been grabbed by the film people and everything because they see it, it we grounded the characters a little more than usual, mm-hmm. but that's what it needed at the time, I guess. So
0: Yeah, well, and you know, talking about the success and getting the word out with just a small crew of you you three trying to push it out there. What I find yeah. so interesting is that what you guys managed to do because of your relationship with Wizard, Garib put Ash and Kid Death on a third cover of Wizard, like six to eight months before you guys even printed anything. There was yeah. a Rob Liefeld Youngblood cover, there was a Hulk cover, and then here's Ash and Kid Death, and you're like, who? Like, we don't know who this is, but it's Joe Cassada and Jimmy Paviano all right you know like so so so
1: garrett was smart because do i invest in companies that maybe give me exclusives and maybe work with me sometimes we're going to invest in two, these two idiots that'll give us anything we want,
2: <laughs> and
1: I think that's where Garib Weni. said, so let me invest in these guys because they can, they have, they, they have some excitement to them, and they seem fresh. And his magazine was all about what's new and what's fresh, right? What's going to yeah. break? Yeah. What's going to break the mold? And also, you know, the price guide, right? It was a whole other part of it. Well,
0: um, so you you guys did so many covers over the years for Wizard. I'm just very curious. Do you have a favorite cover you produced, and what was the the idea of getting a commission assignment from Wizard to say, do a cover for us. Like, how did that process usually well, so work when you? you? Got that
1: when you got that call, you were like, we win, right? Because you're on the cover of Rolling Stone. And a lot of times they were like, we need a cover right away or whatever. And Joe and I would just literally dig in and nail the cover. And it usually was based on something we did. But sometimes it was things like Superman and Batman and Batman, whatever. Yeah. Um, but it didn't matter, right? Because we got the cover of Wizard. And that gave us free press. And then Gareth, he would keep most of the covers, the original art. He had all of them. I think his dad might have bought one or two from us for next to nothing, probably, you know, like for lunch money. But we just felt like if we do this for them, they will take care of us for our other stuff. It was a relationship, right? Mm-hmm. They needed us to do something. We would jump and we'd ask them how high. And, you know, it was a good relationship while the magazine was out because we got along with everybody. And when Fred Pierce came in, we knew Fred from Valiant. So Fred came in and we knew Fred and so all of a sudden, we can go up to Wizard and not only know Garib, we know Fred, we know Steven. We know, we'd know we walk around the offices and say hi to everybody. And then we'd say, what's coming up that we can do for you guys? And inevitably, uh, the guys on staff, you know, essentially Rob Sampson would go, hey, man, we got, you know, we got a, a Batman come. Could you guys do it if I get it for you guys? Well, like, yeah, sure. You know, so that's how it happens. One less phone call they have to make. They just call Joe and Jimmy and, and they'll nail it for them. <laughs> and Paul <laughs> out Paul would color a lot of them. so cool.
2: You'd mentioned a few minutes ago about uh, like the filming industry and, and so on, and I saw when I was doing a little research, can you tell us about your involvement with Trio Entertainment? So I'm no longer with Trio. Okay, I, I didn't okay. see you on the website, but I, but it wasn't... No, I,
1: I started I started a, a film company with Kristana Loken, who was a very close friend of mine, and, and her partner at the time. And we got like a year into it, and uh, we realized that what they wanted and what I wanted were two separate things. So mm-hmm. I'm still friends with everybody, you know, but we, I just, it wasn't for me. So I kind of, you know, moved on, and they're still mm-hmm. in business. So sometimes yeah. it takes a little time to figure out what each person wants to do, but they're great people, and, and uh, you know, no, I'm excited. You know,
0: Michael's a film professor and a, yeah. and a, a yeah. filmmaker. So, I, so
2: I, uh, yeah. I have a writing degree, I have a film degree, and I've always been interested in the world of production companies because it's it's a fickle fickle place.
1: <laughs> it's you know what? It, it wasn't for me because I'm creative. Like I'm considered pure creative, right? Mm-hmm. So I have screenplays written that, you know, we'll never see. And I have screenplays that have been sold. And I have worked as a producer on three different things and uh, a show and some movies and stuff like that. So I have those credits and I have that experience. But, you know, the film industry is very much this one's nephew and that one's cousin. And uh, like, even when I hand in like a screenplay for a book I wrote, they go, we love that, but we're going to get this guy to rewrite it yeah Mm. to rewrite it and i said can i see his credentials and they're like well he hasn't done anything yet he's but he's the nephew of this guy and i'm just like no great nice, appreciate that yeah Yeah. then i find out they didn't even read what i gave them they just they're just assuming it's not good and and the the joke is you know look i look i worked for two years with uh, jessica chastain and her
2: crew yeah
1: you know we had they had somebody rewrite my outline and then do the screenplay, and then eventually I get the screenplay back to rewrite that. So it's it's an industry that what's the word I'm looking for where they hire their own what's the word nepotism? Yes, it's an industry with an excessive amount of nepotism. Excessive amount. I, I you know I have an agent out in L.A. and I have a lawyer, entertainment lawyer, and they call me when they need me. Mm. He has all my books. But I don't need the day to day stuff because day to day stuff is brutal. And um, you know, I used to I used to fly out to LA six times a year and go pitching and go meet. You know, well, yeah, I'm curious about that
0: because, like, you know, you you were one of the few of your era. You know, like, you know, Billy Tucci was trying to get a she movie made, didn't come together. You know, Mark Silvestri had some stuff. He got Witchblade made, but you got Painkiller Jane made. That was on Sci Fi, right? Yeah, it was it was was a TV
1: movie, and then it was a 22 episode series. Yeah. So
0: were you were you happy with how that? Turned out like at that time,
1: so the movie itself was you know, was interesting, um, because they kind of changed the concept, but it was still fun to shoot, and you know, it was great. I was there for the whole shoot, and then when we got the series, sci fi promised this one thing, and then it became a sci fi, it, it kind of changed over time. But I did get to work in the writer's room, I did get to write an episode, I did get producer credits, and I, you know, I was up in, in Vancouver for a, a while on certain episodes looking over stuff, you know. I got into arguments with people because when you're the creator, people assume that it should push you to the side a little (laughs) bit. But, you know, when I wrote, when I wrote the one episode I wrote, it's called The League. When I wrote that, it's probably the truest the character's been. But everything was a fight. And, you know, and and you have to fight nicely. You have to fight with a smile up there. Um, But I was rewriting parts of the script. I was arguing with the director. And, and, you know, that's where uh, Cristina and I became good friends because she would come into my trailer and help me decompress by listening to me complain. So, you know, it was an interesting ex- experience and I learned a lot on it. And, you know, it helped me like when when they were shooting random acts of, of violence in in uh, Toronto, Man and I went up and I got to hang out with Jay Baruchel and the crew. And I, I just, I understood like, here's my place in this place and then you know jay would ask me what do you think of this?" and what do you think of that and i'd answer honestly but i realized that my role as a producer is not to tell them to change things it's just Mm -hmm. to sit there and you know look over everything and if there's something that screams yell you know Mm -hmm. but when they made jonah hex they didn't dc didn't involve us at all and if if it wasn't for one of the producers that invited us to the set we never would have been on it and when we were on the set we were we were able to vocalize to them that you got some issues here They didn't listen to them, but at least afterwards they acknowledged that. Yeah, you were right with kind of that stuff. So it's an interesting business because everybody's so afraid to say anything and lose their job. It's like think about the set of cats. Probably everybody (laughs) on that set was probably like, "This is a disaster. What are we doing?" But they push through and they're cheering for it. (laughs) <laughs> and at the end of the day, you know, you, you you could throw that in a cat box as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, seriously. And you know, so it's a very interesting industry. And what I love about comics is uh, if I write it and my artist draws it, that's pretty much what it is. Yeah, so well, nobody in, can this, touch it.
0: this is what I find so fascinating is you know, art is like the first and foremost thing that people notice, you know. And so I think of our generation, especially a lot of people say, Oh, Jimmy Palmiotti, the Inker. But your development <laughs> as a writer over the years is what excites me because you know, a lot of people say, Well, it's a visual medium. It is a visual medium. But But for me, I'm always paying attention to the words. The dialogue is huge to me. And from the beginning, like with Ash, with 22 Brides, with, you know, with uh, Painkiller Jane, as I've read through these books, like it is just, it is, it's super fun and it's exciting and it always fits like it's an actual story. Like there were other artists of that era where it was just the flash and it was just the art and you just were disappointed. You're just like, well, it's a nice pinup, but I don't enjoy reading this. I'm not going to go back. But your, your books really did have that, like, it's, it's amazing to see, like it was or nice to... To know, you know, that somebody was going to put as much focus into the writing as much as the art. Uh, and, and again, that you've continued that is just fantastic. Yeah, I I've,
1: I've always been that guy that will tell you if I'm disappointed by something or I'll watch a show and I'll go, you know, they blew it in the last act. We all have that, right? We, yes. we watch a movie and go, they needed another ending. You know, they needed, you know, Shoreshack did it right. It had three endings. And by the time you left, you were like, great movie, right? Yeah. But like movies have like just they fall apart. And and part of acknowledging and growing up with that is understanding when I'm writing, I have a responsibility, two responsibilities, one to entertain and two, to make sure that people reading it feel like they got their money's worth story-wise. Like, I don't want to give a, a four ninety nine dollars comic and then you read it in three minutes and, and you're like, that's it. And because I'm a huge consumer, my pull list is insane. I have comics. You can't see it here because I'm facing the only blank spot. The rest of my room looks like an <laughs> insane asylum of comics. And since I'm a consumer, I'm very aware of what people expect from a comic and, mm-hmm. and what I expect. So yeah, the art has to be great. Look, I, I, modern comics, I'm not a big fan of because they're expensive. And the covers just have people standing there. Like, they're these pinup covers. There's no story. There's no connection to the inside of the book. So I, I feel like like I, I even the modern stuff I, I read now, I'm like, Ugh, it's just, it's pretty. But there's, you know, I feel like I got ripped off on this one. You know, I, I have that feeling a lot. You know? The
2: worst is when you have a beautiful cover and you buy it for the cover, you open it up and you're like, oh, I just wasted five bucks on this just for this yeah. beautiful cover. <laughs> it it bums me out so many times. Yeah. I mean, let's be honest that I, if I was a, a
1: DC or Marvel or something, I just every year I would put out a, a book of just alternate covers to get it over with so people can see them all. But, you know, but again, they're they're putting this fake value on things. And the Mm -hmm. joke is people buy these crazy alternate covers that I'm not talking about one of 200 copies or 600 copies. That's an actual chase book. I'm talking about they make 10,000 of these alternate covers and and, and people are paying crazy money for it. And they're worthless, you know, because the publisher six months later puts them on sale for 60 percent off on Diamond. And then you realize these people all got ripped off and they, yeah. they could have been buying some more indie books or buying some back issues or something. So it's, it's become a little scammy comics. And, and uh, I like to get away from that. I think if I put out a book, it should have a little bit of everything. If you remember the event books, we not only did the story, we talked in the back, we did these little,
0: you know. Yeah. You, the, you would give like your reviews of the latest albums that came yes, out yes. that you were listening to. I would. Yeah. And
1: even when I, I did a series called creator on heroes for image that just didn't sell but there were like there were like 68 to 72 to 96 page books for 499 with a ton of stuff including comics and it just didn't take off but those were the books I felt like this is what I want for 499. I want this big thick monster that I can sit and spend a whole day on but obviously not enough people agreed with me. <laughs> um, you know with, ev- with every success there's like a whole boatload of failure and I've had that boatload but the boatload teaches me how to succeed better every time.
2: That's cool. So I have a a writing question for you. So you've written for various companies as well as your own. Like I I use Final Draft for writing and they have like, you know, Dark Horse's layout and, you know, various companies. Like, do you have to tailor your script to the company you're writing for? Or do you just, you have your format and you submit it that way?
1: I don't tailor it for them. You know, they don't care. As long as you put page one, panel one, Mm -hmm. description, dialogue. (laughs) I don't think they really care about your formatting. Um, I use a word program and a word program's fine. You know, when I do screenplays, I use final draft because they have an expectation of pacing and all that stuff. But for comics, it's not a big deal if your format's a tiny bit different. Like some people will space the dialogue two spaces away from the margin. Mm-hmm. And then some people will uh, center their descriptions, you know, like they get all fancy and weird and I, and I I want to make it so the uh, artist can see it easily. So that's the way I space it. And then when I have color notes, I make them in color. So the colorist can look at the book real quick and say, okay, I'll put like daytime and I'll make it orange, right? Mm -hmm. Yellow, orange. And, They'll see that. The colors will know, oh, okay, that page is, you know, I, I, at one point we were redesigning the blue line for pages at one of the companies. And I said, can we put an AM and PM clock on the top of each page so people know what time oh. it is? And, and they were like, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, so there's little shorthand things I do. Um, you know, I also put a lot of links. So if I'm going to say, uh, you know, it's the Eiffel Tower at this angle, I'll find a photo and then I'll put a link so the artist okay. can just pull it. Or if it's a certain car, I'll put a link to some of the cars <laughs> so they can see it. I feel that helps the artist. It doesn't give them anywhere to run. They have to actually focus now on what you're describing to them. And that's a control thing for me. But I will, the more familiar I am with an artist, the less, less hard I have to work. So if I'm working with Amanda, I know I just have to say it's this, this, and that, and she gets it.
0: You put a note on the fridge. Yeah. yeah, (laughs) Well, well,
1: even, even like guys like uh, Juan Santa Cruz or uh, Paul Glacey or any of those guys, I always put a thing or, or Chad Harden. I always say, if you feel you can tell this story with more panels than add as many panels as you like. Just don't cut any because mm-hmm. you're not going to be able to to make it better with the shorthand. So I, and I grew up loving the, you know, Jim Starlin and Jim Stranko. And I love the nine to 15 panel pages and the crazy sequences of Captain Marvel bashing the cube. <laughs> and I love all that. So when an artist tells me, you know, I added four more panels. I remember Phil Noto. I asked him on one page of A Beautiful Killer to do like 20 small panels And he said, why? And I said, because I'm trying to show this is the first time this girl has ever gotten on an airplane. So I have her messing with all the things in the airplane to show that without saying it, that she's just, this is new to her. And when he did it, we were both laughing. And Paul's like, yeah, man, that's like, he's like, that's so like, cut, 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 cut. Like Like a montage almost. Yeah, Right. It's a filmmaker's tool, but you put it in a comic. And I said, yeah, I said, because... It's a t- storytelling. It's 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 for everything. You know, comics are the blueprints for this kind of stuff anyway, for film. You learn like shorthands, but there is no one way to do it because anybody that says that is only working for one person then, I guess. Because I've worked right. for everybody and no one's ever said, hey, can you reformat your script for us? Yeah. I've never had that as a conversation. Good to
0: know. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it feels like everybody has Jimmy audio on speed now because you literally, you have worked for everybody. It, but it also, there was a very interesting moment in time getting back to to Garam and Wizard because mm. you and Amanda were involved in the launch of Black Bull Comics yes. you guys were working on Gate Crashers with Mark Wade. But you know I don't know how successful the line was overall obviously very promoted in Wizard Magazine but what yeah. can you tell us about the development of that imprint on your side and also we heard there was a little controversy from some publishers and other pros with Wizard publishing their own comics I'm curious if you heard anything from that at the time yeah
1: Yeah, so Garib wanted to publish comics because he saw, hey, I could own some characters. Garib and Fred Pierce approached me and said, would you want to run this for me, for us? And I said, well, here's what I need in order to do that. I need to be able to pick who's on what, who the teams are, what it looks like, how the printing is. They said, yeah, Garib's like, go ahead. We just want we want your take on these books. And I said, all right. The other thing is I want to write a bunch of books. He's like, OK, which I wound up doing with New West and Beautiful Killer and uh, and Gay Gatecrasher. We, so I, I pitched a couple of concepts. We went, you know, Gatecrasher was the first one we went with and got Mark Wade involved because I figured, OK, I want to write more. So let me work with a guy that is one of the best writers in the business. So I'm going to get some of his mojo if I kind of sit in the <laughs> same room with him. And he lived in Brooklyn at the time. So we would go over his house and work. So. Yeah, people were making noise like, why is Wizard launching their own comic company? And I thank God that I don't really care. Um, I just felt like if we make these great comics, nobody's going to complain anymore. And that's what happened. They came out and, you know, we had a couple of people going, hey, it's not fair. They're pushing it in the magazine. And I, and I used to use the argument, well, if you owned it, they've been pushing their own cards and they've been pushing their own. How is this any different? And they said, here's the great news. You don't have to buy anything. They're not making you buy anything. So if you don't like it, too bad. Um, This is how companies grow. And look at all these great creators that I got to work with. You know, I mean, Phil Noto was his first comic was a beautiful killer. That was the first comic he ever did. Amanda found him at Megacon. When he had a little table drawing and we hooked him right up. So I got to work with Phil on that and Beautiful Killer and New West. And that was me exercising, doing my writing my own thing, seeing if I had any chops or not, you know, past what I did in the past. And at the same time, you know, Gatecrash was fun. And me and Mark and Amanda had a blast and Paul Mountains had a blast doing it. There's an energy to that comic. That yeah, is very you, you much- can
0: see it. I've, I've been re- I found some back issues recently. And so I've been reading through them. like this is such a fun book. Like, again, I kind of waved it off at the time, too. I'm like, oh, is there right. a well, comics? If you, so if you read Harley,
1: if you read Harley, you can see that energy is there. And it's and it's a thing. It's a signature thing with Amanda and I. Mm-hmm. There's a certain amount of energy. Uh Dan D.O. used to call it the Jamanda Universe <laughs> at DC. He said, because he said when we launched, when they launched the new 52, Harley was the only book that didn't change all out of right, all the you. 52 titles. Ours mm-hmm. was the only book that went as if it was the next day. We didn't and I told Dan, I said, Don't ask me to change what's working. And he's like, you know what? You're right. And he goes, "We'll just put a new cover on it and call it number one." But all the other books had completely different teams and formats, except for ours. And uh, he just said, "He says it's." He goes, "You guys create a universe. In your universe, it's Harley. It's Atley. Power Girl drops by. Starfire's there." It could
2: theoretically um, be an Elseworlds story, you know, it's, it's... Right,
1: except we use the argument that it's it's the world. It's not an Elseworld. it's actually... Because you know, we did acknowledge stuff in the DCU, but we didn't make it the, the main component of our stories, like crossovers. We didn't want to do any crossovers because I felt like crossovers rip off the people that buy the monthly books because mm-hmm. they're forced to listen to some other garbage that resets everything once again. So I'm not a big crossover person. I do like when characters stop by, and that's probably the Marvel Comics 2-in-1 guy in me that used to like that when it felt special, not when it's that character's in every... Harley's popular, therefore she's in every DC book. You know, we when we did Harley, we did not allow them to put Harley in other books. I don't know if you noticed that. If it was going to be Harley with another character, we had to do it. And that was the deal we had with DC is when Amanda and I are doing Harley, you can't make another Harley book without us.
2: That's cool.
1: And that went on for five years and it served them very well. And then the minute we were off, of course, they put Harley in every book.
2: Yep.
1: <laughs> they they did a new series that ignored what we did in the old series. And that's the character we have now, which is all over the place, I, yeah. I feel. You know, 30th anniversary is coming up and that's great. But I feel like it, it got a little watered down and that was the thing amanda and i were worried about when we worked on harley that they were going to just put her everywhere and it was going to become warded down we've seen it happen a million times you know oh,
2: I, I i was just saying to somebody the other day like i think like last month one particular like two week span, every single issue was either a Batman book or a Harley book or they were in somebody else's book. Yeah. And I was like, OK, is it a Batman like is it Batman comics now? Like what is going on here?
1: Well, the problem with that is there's no continuity of character. Right? Yes. So
2: it's so frustrating.
1: So when we wrote Harley, she was a very steady Kind of, Amanda always likes to say she was the Bugs Bunny of the DCU. She would instigate stuff, but she was very consistent with her supporting characters. And we had, you know, it's funny because even the book you're reading, the Harley Quinn and the Birds of Prey trade, it's completely consistent with the last issue we left off in Harley. And then we have like a short story in a new 30th anniversary, and it literally takes place right after that story. Because in our brain, we're just seeing it as one story. And no matter what anybody else does, um, we pitched we pitched Power Girl. We pitched the Power Girl uh, series. DC, which they didn't want, but it basically was going to be called 13, and it was going to be the 13th issue for our 12 issue run. Power Girl was going to wake up from a dream and say What was messed up, and then go <laughs> right back as if nothing happened. And uh, they were like, they were like, "No
2: way!"
0: <laughs> oh, what a, what a no. bummer. <laughs> so I, I, we do have to ask this, Jimmy, because we ask it to every Wizard staffer and every, and every comic book professional that we get a chance to speak to. You know, Gar personally, and in the magazine, they like to poke a lot of fun at garab sheamus the big cheese so we ask you garab sheamus cool or fool
1: i'm still friends with him cool or fool i think everyone falls into the middle category i think if you say cool then it's deceiving and if you say fool that's really an underestimation in somebody uh, you can't underestimate him because he's still he's still out there kicking and doing business. I, so I, I will say in the middle, like everybody else.
0: That is definitely the safe answer, but the more true answer. Yeah, he doesn't fall into either extreme.
1: I, I think some pissed off workers of his might have said, fool. Correct. Um, <laughs> yes. You know, right. Yes, I, I haven't listened to all your other shows, but I'm sure there's one or two. Rob Samsel. Oh, yeah. Worked there. Now, I don't know if he comes up a lot. Not quite as much. He passed away. Rob was the guy that Wizard would send out to the shows to talk to the artists. Rob was the guy that knew all the creators. Oh, wow. He was the liaison. Rob Samsel was at every show we were at. And he would come over and say, what do you got guys got coming up? And what do you got? You know, what's going on in the future? And then he would incorporate us into the book. So Rob was a really important guy. And and for a lot of people, we'd see Garib. But on on the ground, we would talk to Rob. Rob would be the guy we'd say, hey, is there any way we're doing this in August? Is there any way we can work this into the book? And Rob would call us back and go, let me let me check with the guys and see what it is. So he Rob Samson was our liaison for the okay. company. Very important guy for us.
0: Yeah, that's that's good to know. Yeah. To put him in his proper spot for how important yeah. he was. to. And, and to Rob was cool.
1: Him. Actually, Rob was cool hey there it's we one go of those guys i can say is cool <laughs> wherever he is god bless him in the universe um yeah. he knows what i'm talking about but he we, we became really good friends after even after he left wizard we be, we stayed good friends
2: oh wonderful you know? i have one final question i work in higher education i work for cuny at a, okay. at a school, school in downtown brooklyn yeah. and a lot of our students are illustrators and and aspiring comic book artists and writers and and creatives and you know some of them are super talented but it's hard to give them guidance a a lot of these kids are very come from poverty and low income and, and they're trying right. to find their way into the world. What sort of advice or, or thoughts you might have for aspiring artists and creatives and, and stuff like that?
1: I mean so your job is tough because no matter what their level, you have to be encouraging. Yes. And then sometimes if you approach them with advice, they could either push back or go along with it. And that's how you find out which students are going to grow and which ones aren't. Right. But you have to you have to also unlock what's keeping them from listening.
2: I I say that I got to find their like their aha moment, the moment where they have that moment of self-realization of I get this. I see what he's trying to say. Right,
1: And and sometimes it's not easy because they, they're coming to you with predetermined uh, outlooks on things and, they have. They look at you and say, you know, well, that's not true or he believes that, but that's bullshit or whatever. I, I get it because I used to teach in camp. I used to teach kids how to do arts and crafts in camps. And, and it was funny how many kids would say, I can't do that. And I'd be like, why? And they're like, no, I I just can't do it. And then you talk to them and eventually they'd say, because somebody else told them they couldn't, Mm -hmm. therefore they keep repeating that. And they keep saying like, well, I guess I can't, I can't do that. We we do that sometimes like people say, well, I'm too stupid to understand that right? And on some level, we're believing our own bullshit because it becomes a defense mechanism after a while. Somebody says, can you build that? You just go, I can't build it. There's no way I can do that kind of... I don't do that kind of... Or I I have people tell me, I don't really know how to work the phone, so I can't do it. And I I will sit with them and I'll say, well, let me show you how to do it. And they don't even want to get there because they've said it over and over. So you have kids now who come to you and either they don't want to learn they want to learn, but they don't know how to learn, right? right. Or because, because their parents, whatever, whatever mates shape them. So it's a really tough spot. So when you're, an, when you're a teacher, you have to appreciate everything they do because they put an effort. Even if it's terrible, you have to understand that you have to appreciate the effort and hope to move the chess piece to another square after that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I always, you know, it's like when people ask me to do a review of their writing or their portfolio, their artwork, I look at it and I talk to them before I review it because I want to get a sense of are they going to really listen to what I want or they just want me to say you're great, so they can move on. And it's surprising how many people just want to hear it. "I'm you're yeah. great" and want to move on. To get back to your question, especially writing, it's not for everybody, but everybody can write. Mm-hmm. But only a couple are going to make it a craft or something they can do. You just have to be encouraging. I, I like to say, uh, if the house is on fire, look for the room that's not on fire, you know, and focus on that for a bit. Um, <laughs> you know, if, if they come with you with drawing and they they, you, they can't draw hands let's say, and they insist on you, there's no way they can draw hands. I am mean, the worst artist, you know, I, I always break it down to a circle and five sticks and then we, we start building stick figures with hands. You know, I, I find a way to dissect it where it's not so scary for them. It comes down to people being scared. What, what stops people from writing is their feelings that they're going to be judged harshly or they're going to be judged, right? So when we're young, when we're kids, we're encouraged to write and draw. And everything we do, people, oh, you're parents, let me hang your art on a fridge. Right. But when we get to the point of where other people start looking at it and commenting, that's when we start losing our artists and writers because their friends, their, their mates, their teachers start telling them, well, you know, it's not so good. That arm is wrong. So they start dissecting and the kids absorb that stuff more than anything. We absorb negative much more than positive. Right. Oh, yeah. That's that's human nature. And then you learn that these kids stop drawing because of that. And you know, when they start drawing again, when they're in their seventies and eighties and they don't care what people think they start drawing. That's why there's a million seniors painting and drawing and writing classes. There's a million <laughs> of them because they don't care anymore. They've got through a whole lifetime of saying, you know what? I don't care what they say. I'm just going to do it. Cause I'm having fun. So we lose our artists and writers in this giant gap because of outsider influences and stif- and people stifling people. And so I just, I always try to be positive. I'm always like, I don't want to lose that kid who's 14 that loves drawing and he sucks at it. I don't want to lose him because at 16, it might just click and he's going to go over and you, you can't control what's going to click. It's just going to be something. I, I tell people that when they're drawing, I'm like, buy a Rima paper and freeze frame your TV show and just draw off the TV. Like just practice, practice, practice. You have models all day long in front of you right. using your TV and computer. But I'll never be negative. I'll always be positive with them because like I said, an ex of mine was a singer and she would have an album come out and it would be 150 great reviews and two bad reviews. And she her band would focus on those two bad reviews all day long. And those two bad reviews would decide how they moved forward. Hmm. okay instead of the 150 great ones and that is human nature and that is a real thing and that's a thing we have to be careful about with creative minds especially growing minds is how a little bit of negativity is outweighs break a ton of positive again i had to learn this over years of therapy and all that kind of stuff <laughs> so i'm just throwing it to you in a minute or two. I,
2: I, I appreciate that
1: yeah, yeah, that's
0: yeah. awesome. Well, as we close out here, Jimmy, just last question, yeah. you know, we are a Wizard Magazine podcast. So yeah. we just ask you in your mind, what is the legacy of Wizard Magazine as it relates to your career or the industry as a whole? And do you have a vivid like Wizard Magazine memory where you're like, this is why I loved being involved with them?
1: I, I think the magazine it could still sell today if it came out. It just wouldn't need certain people running it. I know if I was running Wizard Magazine now, I know I could make it successful again. If, you if I was that? running. I, and somebody I, I, out there. Okay. <laughs> as far as the legacy, I think it you know, it connected people that had a hobby together and mm-hmm. and it actually brought in a lot of new people. To, to the hobby. And then I think as far as wizard stories, my buddy Nelson DeCastro and I did two wizard awards. We would get on stage and give away the awards and we put on a little show beforehand. One of them we did was Nelson was dressed as Godzilla and he sang a song and stepped on New York in <laughs> part the party boxes. The other one we did was and I don't know if you remember this or anybody's ever talked about it was when we me and Nelson went to a recording studio professional recording studio in New York and we prank called other comic creators oh wow did you ever did you no, hear, let's about, hear that?
0: about this so <laughs>
1: we prank call the comic creators who were all in the audience like months before so in the audience they were hearing it for the first time they didn't know it was a prank at the time or well, they knew it was a prank they didn't know who did it <laughs> but we went on stage and said, hey, guys, for our show today, we're going to play these recordings of us crank calling Jay Lee, Eric Lawson. We called up the Marvel <laughs> offices. Uh, one time we called up Macy's because uh, Silver Surfer uh, left his surfboard there. We did all <laughs> these crank calls. and and uh, So you were the he- jerky boys of comics? <laughs> we, we, we were doing that. <laughs> Hello, we, sir. <laughs> yeah, we called up Chris Claremont at one point complaining. <laughs> oh and they were all in the audience laughing their asses off. I think Eric Lawson. Nelson may believe he was a, a guy that was putting on a show in Las Vegas. And he says and he gets on the phone. And he's like, how are you doing, Eric Larson? I want to hire you to do this show. I wish I had the recordings. I have them somewhere. But and he may believe he was a lion tamer slash show promoter. <laughs> and while he was on the phone, the lion attacked him. You know, we had we had a professional studio. <laughs> it's one of my favorite wizard moments because everybody in the audience it was like a hysterical for 10 minutes straight audience laughing there and, so, and creators going i can't believe that was you guys like they just had no idea who did that to them oh that's so <laughs> and funny it was that's so fantastic the revelation Ooh. of that was fun maybe one or two of them were pissed but they got over it pretty quick <laughs> that's my good wizard memory because wizard used to bring the creators together like and the magazine that had a great did a great job of making it seem like one big happy family. And uh, I think that's what the legacy too was people read it and felt they were familiar with everybody. And it was kind of like this, this, we were just like a one big happy family in comics back then. And that was great. It wasn't all this Facebook and uh, Instagram and uh, Twitter arguing and calling out people. And it's, it's none of that. It was all like, here's some new comics. Look how cool this art is. Here's how I did it. Go out and buy it. Damn it. (laughs) <laughs> you know, so we miss those days. Yeah, for Well, sure. Speaking
0: of which, though, what do you want people to know about these days, Jimmy? Where can they find your latest projects? What are you most excited about?
1: All right. So they can go to my page at paperfilms.com. And if you join the mailing, there's a pop up that says join the mailing list. And maybe twice a month, we send an email of what I got coming up, what Amanda has coming up, what shows we're going to be at some coupons if they want to buy some stuff we have so that's the first place The second coming up I have a 10 man and I did a 10 page story for the Harley Quinn 30th anniversary book and that comes out in fall uh, with Chad Harden of course drawing it as usual and Alex and Claire coloring it as usual so the team's together for a 10 pager and then um coming up we're doing a thing called uh a Zest World which is like Amanda and I do comics if you go to zestworld.com you can join for free or if you want to do a little pay thing, you'll get comics in your email every other week from us, new stuff. Amanda's Amanda has a thing called K Boom, and uh, I have a thing called Found that's in chap comes out in chapters. So we have that. Amanda and I did an, a book about Blondie that's coming up from Z2 Comics, where we tell the story of how Chris Stein and Deborah Harry met and formed the band, and cool. it's illustrated and it's pretty cool. Yeah. And that's really cool because I got to talk with the the group and everybody. It's kind it's kind of a it's a pretty cool book. That's when cool. you see it, band, if you like the band, you're going to love the book because they they definitely had their hand in it. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. I got a Kickstarter with an Amanda Conner sketchbook. It's like a naughty and nice kind uh, of, oh, cool. it's, it's got a theme to it. And we got another Painkiller Jane Kickstarter coming up. And, and Kickstarter we'll is a at-
2: full-time job in itself, just promoting it's not- it and everything. That's it, a lot of work. It,
1: it is. And we got, we got, the, yeah, that's, oh yeah, that's exhausting. That's another show in itself. Yeah. Um, <laughs> And then we're going to be at Heroes Con, San Diego Comic Con, and New York Comic Con. That's what we got lined up. So nice. if anybody's cool. in the area, come on by and cool. you know, tell us. You, tell us you watched this show <laughs> and we can, we'll give you, I don't know
0: what we'll give you. We'll figure out something. Yeah, special there we handshake. go. Tell them wizards. Special yeah. wizard
1: handshake. <laughs> I guess the
0: W. It's like a
1: wizard handshake. It's like
0: a wizard. <laughs> well, Jimmy, thank you so much for joining us. thank you for the stories. This was a ton of fun, and your enthusiasm continues to impress always. And uh, we love to hear it love to feel it. So thank you for coming on here and telling us what you were thinking then and what you're thinking now. It was a pleasure to have you, and thank you so much. It was an honor to have you as our, our guests. So
2: thank you. Thank so you. Much.
1: Well, thanks, Mike. Thanks, Adam. This was is a lot of fun.
0: This has been a presentation of the Retro Network.
2: Sorry, I'm in my parents' house. My, my mother's doing laundry. Okay, I Mom. apologize.
1: Mom, did she have your, is she
2: cleaning your underwear for you? <laughs> she is not, thank goodness. Okay. Oh, fortunately, this is what happens when you move out of your house to do construction. You got to yeah. go somewhere to work.